Hello everybody, welcome to Seeing Clearly Acting Wisely. My name is Jake Dartington and in these podcasts I talk to other meditation teachers about themes they're exploring. Today's conversation is with Sebene Selassie and we met up and spoke about her book You Belong. And many of the themes that we discussed are really at the forefront of people's minds these days. So, for instance, we spoke about how we can respect and acknowledge our particular identities, including race and sexuality and gender, and hold that together with what we might call a more ultimate perspective that comes from the Buddhist teachings on not-self. We also spoke about the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. And I know this is very much alive in yoga circles and in meditation organizations. And we spoke about what sometimes gets left out of Dharma practice, including music, including dance. And it was fascinating to hear Sebene's own journey to make dance more part of her life. So I very much hope you enjoy listening to the conversation and that it inspires your own reflections. So thanks very much for uh, agreeing to talk to me. It's uh, yeah, real pleasure to, to talk to you. And I, I really, really loved reading your book. And there's so many things in there we can talk about. So I was wondering if we could begin by um, just talking about this theme of belonging and what really drew you to that theme, why that theme was important to you. Well, I I say in the book, and I I do kind of recognize this in myself, I wrote about belonging because I've always longed for it. And it's something that felt really out of my capacities because uh, of so many reasons. And the kind of theme of the book is that we all feel in different ways this lack of belonging. You know, maybe some people think of it as social, um, but really I'm talking about the sense of separation that we feel from anything, from other people, from ourselves, from parts of ourselves, from all of nature. So belonging becomes this metaphor for um, really coming into contact with a deep sense of knowing our true connection to everything. And I didn't grow up with that sense of connection. I didn't grow up with a sense of connection to my family members um, because of our own internal traumas and challenges that were probably handed down through the generations. I didn't feel that because we immigrated when I was very young and I felt out of place in an American culture. I grew up black in white neighborhoods, so I felt the sense of racial not belonging. Um, But I also didn't feel very connected to my immigrant culture because I was being raised by American TV and, you know, American popular culture. So these, this feeling of not belonging was showing up a lot in my life kind of all around me. And I kind of, I think it led to a deeper sense of not belonging to, to my body, to, to others, to nature. Yeah. Thank you. So there are really these different levels, aren't there, of kind of belonging and not belonging that you're, you're speaking about. And because sometimes when I was reading the book, I got the sense of um, belonging as almost be what happens when um, greed, hatred and delusion fall away, you know, in the sense of the the Buddhist practice. So it's a sort of another way of talking about those states of the, you know, the Brahma Vihara's love and compassion and um, and uh, equanimity. Um, So there's that feeling of a belonging almost, we might say, on a spiritual level, you know, belonging in the universe. 
And then also yeah. there's the particular forms of belonging that you're talking about, as you're saying, you know, coming from an immigrant family and what that was like then to be in America and as a black person in a white neighborhood. So that, I got that sense throughout the book that this kind of word belonging is almost working on these different levels. Well, you know, and I use this um, paradox of the two truths throughout the book to kind of point to those different levels, you know, and talk about the fact that, yes, we are fundamentally inter interconnected. There's an absolute reality of non-separation. And there is also a relative reality of all of these social conditions and uh, historical realities and our personal realities. And, you know, sometimes um, our meditation practice can sacrifice one for the other. We can almost use it. And, the, you know, this, this is the definition of spiritual bypass. We can use our practice to only tend to kind of that absolute sense of belonging, that spiritual belonging that you're talking about. And that that's really important. And um, we can do I think a disservice to ourselves if we focus on that without understanding that we need to have a relative sense of belonging as well. Mm. And that means untangling, you know, all of the ways we don't feel we belong. And we might use the practice to just kind of bypass those feelings mm. to get at some sense of, um, you know, peace or interconnection or mm. really meditative states become kind of the red herring there. Yeah. Um, and, and so not to dismiss those states, they're very important, they're very healing, they're very powerful, but not to bypass the work of our relative belonging along the way. And, um, and it's going to be different for all of us. You know, I, I keep saying over and over in the book, we are, you know, we are not separate, but we are not the same. And so we need to work through what is um, unique about us in our belonging. Yeah, definitely. And I was really struck by one of the things that's um, particular about your experience. You're saying the experience of, uh, of emigrating to the US and then maybe almost feeling between two, two worlds, really. So, um, yeah, maybe with uh, other members of your family feeling very American and then with other Americans maybe feeling very much the kind of immigrant. Is that give a sense of what that was like? Yeah, there, you know, I think all of us suffer from like too much, not enough, uh -huh. depending on kind of uh, the, the, you know, Goldilocks syndrome of just not quite right. Yeah. So belonging does become this metaphor for that sense of freedom and ease we feel when we're really at peace with the moment. Mm. But it's it's hard to feel at peace at the moment if we're always feeling like we don't fit in. And belonging is not the same as fitting in. You know, it's, I'm not, I'm not um, talking about um, conformity or assimilation or, you know, finding ways to, to um, make ourselves different so that we, we feel a sense of um, connection in a space, but it's this deep inner work of being okay with how things are within us so that we feel that sense of belonging wherever we go. And I did not feel that for most of my life. <laughs> yeah. Belonging is not the same as fitting in. That's really quite, yeah, I, that, that really struck me when you said that and kind of really feel that. So I guess there can be those times when we do try to fit in, you know, I'm with this group of people, I need to be the way they're behaving, I need to somehow pretend I'm the same as them or something. But in doing that, we might be losing other aspects of ourselves that are really uh, important. 
So I guess you're talking about a belonging that doesn't have that tyranny that means in order to belong, we need to be the same or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, I see this coming up a lot in um, Dharma spaces as they diversify and meditation spaces that there are... um, there are ways of uh, expressing the teachings that are communicated as if they're the truth of the teachings, but they're actually just a cultural overlay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so the, I, I started to understand this when I um, started traveling in, in Southeast Asia, um, also visiting other types of Dharma teachings. You know, some people kind of only know one tradition or one way. And then that becomes a fixated idea of like what what the practice needs to look like and um, how it needs to seem and maybe even feel. And so if you have any inkling of um, needing something different, you know, maybe needing movement in a space that's really still, or maybe needing relationality in a space that's really focused on individual practice, or needing um, musicality in a space that's focused on silence. You feel like you are breaking rules or, you know, dishonoring tradition when in fact that might be your way to this deeper sense of belonging that's really about freedom. Mm. Yeah. So those things, I'm just trying to, again, recap that a little bit. So maybe some sense of of the music, a sense of the movement, a sense of the relational. Those are the things that you think might or do often get missed out. Is that fair to say? Yeah, they they can. Yeah. So, you know, just looking at that um, idea of fitting in, it's not the same as belonging Mm. and how, you know, that can show up in a social space, but it can also show up in our, in our practice, right? We just kind of contort ourselves to fit a practice, trying to fit in um, when actually practice is this really deep inquiry and self-exploration that, um, might bring out a different expression of what it means to be mindful or awake or... Yeah, yeah. As you say that, it's actually bringing up a memory for me, really, of um, going to um, some different Christian groups. And um, I remember going to a a Quaker meeting here in the UK, and I think it might be a bit different in the US, actually, but in the UK, the Quakers are very much into silence. They just sit for an hour in silence. And I really, you know, appreciated lots of that. And then I remember going to a Baptist church near where I lived. And then that was just full of this really joyful music and movement and things like that. And I just had the sense, actually, I really like both of these. You know, there's a sense of something really rich and beautiful here. And that, yeah, maybe at different times and in different ways, we can make space for both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I really, that resonates for me so much as someone who loves practice and who loves retreat and long retreat. Um, I also love uh, practices that, um, you know, encourage movement and music and joyful expression. And so how, how do I, we, um, you know, not make a hierarchy of practice and, and really a hierarchy of liberation? Yeah not make a hierarchy of liberation because you talk about dance don't you in the book so that's one element of that and that that was I mean would you say a little more about that because that sounded fascinating I didn't grow up dancing even though there's a a, um, a rich 
history and culture of dancing in both the Eritrea and Ethiopia, where uh, I was born in Ethiopia. My, my parents are, one is Ethiopian, one is Eritrean. Um, so I didn't grow up with this kind of natural inhabitation of my body that I think dance and musicality and culture really encourages. And I really mirrored the dominant society, which in you know America is a dominant white culture that also discouraged dance. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some forms of dance, of course, that are that are exhibited or um, exalted. Mm-hmm. but there there isn't sort of a natural culture of dance like you would find in um, in some some parts of the global south or in Latin culture or um, and so for me I when I started to dance in my late teens early 20s going to clubs and started to move you know I realized how stiff I was and how uncomfortable it was to dance in my body and how there was an erotic element to dance and I don't mean only sexual here and I talk about this in the book but really the sensual relationship with the body and that's certainly not encouraged in insight Hmm. meditation communities and so um, this compounding of kind of a a lack of comfort in the body Hmm. in movement in expression in in kind of a sensual exploration just became uh, an interest and exploration of mine some years ago and, um, you know, started taking dance classes and also started to learn dance that was, uh, was very, is very sensual and, you know, really moves the hips and uh, moves the body in a way that, uh, especially for women can be often shamed or, um, you know, in, in certain cultures, again, in dominant culture can be looked down on. Uh, so for me, it became this question, like, why am I afraid to move my body and why am I afraid to move my body in public? Like many of us have this fear of dancing in public and I have, you know, grown ass friends who like are scared to dance in front of people. Like we are scared to inhabit our bodies in like a joyful, sensual way in front of other human beings. And to me, like to say that sentence aloud, it really sounds you know, it's just wild to think that like this place we've inhabited our whole lives, we actually don't have and like an intimate, comfortable relationship with it. Yeah. So to me, that's like belonging right here in the body. Yeah. Belonging in the body through, through dance really. Yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. That's, and it, you know, again, as you're talking to me, that it's it's triggering so many different memories of this. <laughs> this this memory of me in my teenage years, perhaps I don't know, seventeen, eighteen, and things, being on my own in my bedroom with a mirror, and sort of in you know what started as quite a sort of stiff way, kind of just trying to move and things like that, and the self consciousness I felt as a teenager as well, you know. Um, but little by little, beginning to enjoy dancing and then you know so starting by being able to enjoy it when I was on my own and there wasn't there wasn't perhaps quite so much self-consciousness and then little by little doing that in in public and yeah it's it's fascinating isn't it I remember once going to a festival um where they had meditation and dance and Mm. I thought yeah this is great because I think at a time in my life they'd been a little separate so it's really lovely what you're describing actually that that's actually bringing that together that takes me on to 
more of a sort of feel I got from the whole of your book, which was that I felt it was a very, very flesh and blood book, <laughs> a very um, human book, that there was really you and your emotions in there. And I, I thoroughly appreciated that. And I think this is a bit following from what you're talking about, the spiritual bypassing. And I wonder, is that maybe, did you deliberately do that? Or was that just how your teaching is expressing itself these days? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I, I think there was some deliberateness to it, but it wasn't um, contrived <laughs> in yeah. the sense that, you know, I set out to be like, this is the way I will write. Um, it makes the most sense to me to speak from my experience. Mm. And my experience is not um, from this uh, place of, I have it all down and understood and I don't make any mistakes anymore and I'm not struggling with things. And, um, you know, uh, to speak from this honest place of a path of, and a process of discovery, I would love to be done mm. <laughs> and, and to not have challenges and to, um, to not feel the pain of, of the process of awakening. Mm. Um, but that's not the way it is for me. You know, it, it really is. Um, it's, it's been a path of a lot of lessons. And what I, I hope I do is express those lessons um, in a way that's inviting, yeah. you know, and to, to not be scared of the pain or the challenge of the process, yeah. but to really see them as opportunities and possibilities on, on this path to belonging, on this path to freedom that, you know, really is the most important thing we can do with our lives. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I feel like a real honesty comes across actually through that and through the, the sort of level of willingness to share personally that you've, you've put into the, the book. Um, I mean, I, I was really struck just within the first couple of pages. I've read so many Dharma books and, um, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but many of them do cover similar ground. And I was sort of just there in the first couple of pages and thought, ah, oh, you, you know, you're really going to tell the story, your story, your way. And it was, it just really, really drew me into that. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I wonder if you ever had this, I don't know. But when I look back at my early practice, I think a little bit of, a little bit of me wanted to sort of almost become a Buddha statue. You know, when you see the Buddha and he's sort of sitting there and he's just not still and nothing bothers him really. He's just made of stone or wood or metal and things. And really over the years, this, what I see is this flesh and blood practice has become more and more alive to me that, I mean, A, I can't turn myself, we can't turn ourselves into metal or wood, but B, I wouldn't want to either. Um, I mean, did you ever have that as a kind of image or... Yes. You know, I, I don't know if I had the image of the Buddhist statue, but I had the image of um, a way to get past my pain and problems, yeah. you know, and, and for me, um, a lot of it was um, thinking that I could figure it out intellectually, 
if I just understood all the lists and all the teachings that I would somehow be able to kind of figure it out, figure out how to get out of this pain loop. Yeah. Um, and that, that real, as you say, flesh and blood, like embodiment of the experience of life is really allowing it all in. And so, you know, going back to just being vulnerable and honest, it, it, that's part of it too, to just be honest about what the experience is rather than trying to teach from up on high. And it's not that I, you know, talk about every part of my life all the time. There are some parts of my life that are more private or, but uh, I do want to speak to some of the things we, we just don't hear from the teachings, um, you know, or the, or, or, or certain teachers, you know, to talk about the body, to talk about the erotic, to talk about sex and sexuality, to talk about all of these, you know, social issues, which are coming more and more Mm -hmm. acknowledged, but, uh, to make room for all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole life vision of practice. Yeah. Not something of separated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely and um some words that sometimes come to my mind is sort of humility vulnerability and and fallibility and uh, as i see my practice now it's sort of really making peace with those things i think again in an earlier stage it was almost like if i do enough of this i'll be invulnerable and i'll be infallible and i really feel now you know, those moments of being tempted to sort of claim that space are actually quite, quite dangerous moments, actually. I think it's when we forget our vulnerability and fallibility that we're probably most likely to fall into certain difficulties. Yeah. You know, as you say that, I I just posted something on Instagram yesterday and just kind of named the, you know, processing things and what's going on. It was very quick, just kind of very short statements. And someone commented, um, you know, tr- I think really trying to be helpful, uh, trying to point out what the issue was for me and, you know, how I might want to <laughs> orient around it. And, and it was so interesting. I was like, I never said there was an issue. Hmm. You know, I, I was just saying what's happening. Yes. You projected an issue on it. Yes. And it, it, it's, um, and I often do that to my own life. Yes. You know, experience something as a problem that needs to go away yeah. immediately, whether it's a pain in the body or a difficult relationship challenge. And um, to actually uh, have some facility with navigating those with, you know, tools and a sense of appropriateness, you know, whether that's somberness or, or lightness, because I can go into to to go thinking taking everything really seriously. Like that's one of my yeah. kind of challenges, and lose the perspective and the lightness of things. And you know, if someone tries to be light, then I think they're the dismissing me, or, you know, and I get kind of righteous about it. And so, yeah, having having this um, allow allow it all to be there attitude to our lives is 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 such a profound practice yeah yeah and as, as you're saying that is that sense of what turns a difficult experience into an issue 
Is that the sense I'm getting what you're saying? Yeah, so you're yeah. Describing something difficult, but it's not an issue without, I guess, the self-view or the solidity around it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and how do we kind of tend to what's happening and what's difficult without making it an issue or a problem? Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, but just really meeting it. Yeah, lovely. And um, one of the things that you, you mentioned again was how uh, our teaching um hopefully i don't know it's a work in progress of course but more and more is uh taking on board issues of social justice and again avoiding the spiritual bypassing that you were mentioning earlier and one thing i think about a lot with this i'd love to hear your view on it is sort of how we hold together um on the one hand those teachings around common humanity um which i found really in a really significant, really useful sort of what we all share. And at the same time, really talking about our particular identities and also the advantages that come with certain identities as well. It's not just the different identities, but the, you know, that they really have very real effects in our lives. But I mean, how, how do you see holding those together, the common humanity and the particular identities? Yeah. Um with curiosity and care, yeah. <laughs> first of all, yeah. um, you know, what, and, and I'm saying this to myself as well, uh, that sometimes we can come in with sort of fixed views, um, or ideas about things and not really listen, you know, not really take time to hear out what people have to say, not listen deeply, um, and, and then not do our own work to understand exactly what's being said. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you take the, the um, kind of many different realities, but uh, the, the you know, work around racial justice in Dharma communities or in meditation spaces and creating um, more understanding between people of color and white folks, um, there, there can be sometimes this rush for white folks to just kind of uh, ignore how much they don't know Yeah, in terms of uh, educating themselves and understanding uh, what exactly it is people of color are talking about. It's not just a complaint. I hear, I've heard recently, um, you know, some people in Zoom rooms now are doing affinity group breakouts so that people of color have just like we might do in, 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 in real, in, in live pit spaces. Um, and I've heard it referred to a couple of times by some white facilitators as um, for safety for people of color mm. as if we're, you know, fragile. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. I don't think of it as safety so much as it was exhaustion. Like I don't want to be in a room with white folks who might need things explained to them, especially if we're talking about cultural issues okay. or who um, might be so nervous around uh, being with people of color and saying the wrong thing, that they overcompensate or undercompensate or that, that there's um, a lack of familiarity, a lack of understanding 
that really creates space so that we can talk about different things. Hmm. Like people of color don't want to talk about the basics yeah. around these issues with white folks. Yeah. We, we kind of want to talk about our own stuff, you know, because we, we have our own things to work out amongst ourselves. I've been doing in POC groups now, affinity spaces within POC groups. So South Asian folks can talk about their stuff and Asian American Pacific Islander folks can talk about their stuff and black folks can talk about their stuff. And um, so, yeah, this like curiosity and care to really listen and to do the work. One of, one of my, I tell this story, sometimes I didn't tell it in the book that my friend Elaine, who's a, um, a Dharma teacher, she's a 60 something year old uh, white lesbian woman. And we used to teach together a lot and we would meet, you know, multiple times a week. I was working at New York Insight full time then. And every time I talked to her, she was reading a book by a black author. And we were teaching a lot around kind of beloved community and uh, diversifying spaces. And she, uh, she was reading a, a, like novels and nonfiction, always by a black woman author. And I asked her what was going on. And she's like, well, I spent 60 years you know, basically only reading white books. She's like, I have some catching up to do. Mm-hmm. And I just had such a deep appreciation for, you know, the real attention to educating herself that she was tending to. Yeah. And, um, and I'm trying to do that in my life, you know, pay attention to what young people are saying now, mm-hmm. um, educating myself about disability rights. Cause I really know so little, mm-hmm. so, so little. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, really paying attention to fat activists and what they're pointing to in terms of the, you know, body supremacy culture we have mm-hmm. around fatness. And so there's, there's a, a lot of care and, and it's hard because there are so many things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are so many issues. There's so many Sure. Um, identities there, and we're not going to be able to get it all perfect, yeah. but we can slow down, listen, take care. You know, maybe I don't need to read another like straight Dharma book. Yeah. I don't mean straight heterosexual, but also, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> you know, but it, like maybe I need to kind of learn more about um, these bigger ways of belonging to mm-hmm. each other. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I really get that sense again, that um, that feeling of not knowing what we don't know as well, you know, and that that can be a challenge for so many people, that feeling of, yeah, that there's sort of whole areas of life. It's not just that we don't know about them, but that the kind of ignorance is just we're not even aware of what's <laughs> happening. And I really appreciate your sense of kind of looking out for where those areas are for you. But again, the mm-hmm. encouragement. I guess for all of us to do that really and to sort of see what we're missing in our in our perspectives. And it's, you know, it's hard because we all have um inclinations and loves and kind of attractions to certain things. It's not to deny those, yeah. but to broaden our perspective and our horizon, understanding that that will actually expand our sense of belonging. Mm. And, um, you know, to pay attention to what we are drawn to and what we haven't been drawn to. Mm-hmm. And to maybe consider that, you know, that a lot of folks who are drawn to the Dharma are often drawn to Asian culture and 
um, you know, there can be a kind of Orientalism in that mm-hmm. and a kind of fetishization. Um, and, and I asked this of myself, you know, why wasn't I drawn to more kind of traditional African spiritualities? Mm. And not to say that that would have been right and, and my attraction to the Dharma was wrong, but to at least interrogate that a little bit you know, and to, um, to maybe turn our attention, train our attention towards things that we would unconsciously ignore or avoid in the past. Yeah. Thank you. And do you have a sense of what the answer to that is, that what drew you to the Dharma teachings? You know, I, um, I had just a, I guess you'd say just like a karmic or a, a, a personal um, introduction to it so young because my brother became what's called a Hare Krishna colloquially when I was in high school. So uh, he's eight years older than me. You know, I really looked up to him. So I was just drawn into that and started attending kirtans and lectures. And so from, you know, my teen years, I was already being exposed to Eastern philosophy he you know before he joined that group he was reading the you know the Tao Te Ching and doing the I Ching and reading Siddhartha and just kind of passing these things along to me he got into uh, palm reading and kind of esoteric and occult stuff so by the time I got to university I was already primed and then Mm. uh, ended up majoring in comparative religious studies so yeah yeah it was, I don't think it was a, it was a conscious choice on my part. Yeah. You know, it's this, this gift that was handed to me. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? To, to, to sort of see these, um, yeah, what may appear, I don't know, in retrospect, accidental. I don't know if you see it like that, but yeah, just these different things that end up influencing our lives. Yeah. 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 And there's a, that real sense, isn't there, from, of being kind of enriched by that, encounter with many different cultures and traditions and um and you also talk about that in your book in a way i I really appreciated actually that talking about cultural appropriation on the one hand and then appreciation and exchange on the other and really getting into the very important significant differences between those and yeah would you say a little about that yeah those are kind of four categories that um i made up with my friend brian lesage because we teach a course that we call what gets left out to explore um in mostly in the insight communities but we've also taught it in in zen centers um and other spaces mixed spaces but to look at western dharma and why certain things were chosen to be included in the expression of mainly white dominant uh, convert Western Buddhism um, and what wasn't. So if you look at inside communities, there isn't the same kind of chanting or devotional practices or um, same orientation as you would find in the expression of the Dharma in Southeast Asia. Or, um, and so, uh, you know, really having this uh, four categories to look at like what, what gets shared because the Dharma has changed wherever it went and different things were shared and integrated and syncretized and um, combined and 
left out or put in. So we have these four categories. Um, there's cultural appreciation and cultural exchange, kind of the positive categories. So cultural exchange is when the Dharma changes where it goes and that happens and it's natural and um, you know, we, we don't need to deny it. Cultural appreciation is when you, know, you can just appreciate another culture or another tradition even, and, and not have um, kind of a, a critical or negative relationship to it. And then we point out cultural appropriation, which is talked about a lot, uh, not just in, in meditation circles or Dharma circles, but you know, in many contexts um, when there is <clears throat> a lack of understanding of a particular teaching or culture, and um, it's often commodified or exploited, um, goes unacknowledged. Um, and, and to us, that kind of appropriation, it really needs to be examined and talked about more. Um, and then we talk about a different um, kind of flip side to that, which is cultural dismissal, which I think doesn't get talked about enough. There's been attention on appropriation, but we're calling cultural dismissal when things are deemed as cultural baggage mm-hmm. or um, unimportant. Um, it's often kind of combined with scientific materialist ideas that things that are not provable or not measurable or not worthy. And this has happened in the mindfulness community. So, you know, it, it's, it's changing, but for many years, there was almost um, like an allergy to the more mystical parts of the teachings, the devotional parts of the teachings, um, there was a disassociation of them in order to legitimize mindfulness in kind of popular culture. So cultural dismissal is something that we looked at to, to really look at why do these things get left out and who's doing the leaving out and who does it serve and, you know, how do we address it? So, you know, they're, they're not perfect categories, but they, they, proved useful for us in our teaching when we teach this course to kind of be able to look at the ways we relate to different teachings and, and how they might be fitting into one of these categories. Yeah, thanks for that. I'm, I'm struck that the one that you said wasn't spoken about so much, dismissal, is also the one that I forgot to mention. So it possibly <laughs> proves, your, proves your point there. Um, and, well, can I say one more yeah. thing about that? You yeah. know, it's hard because you you there's... Um, there's a real, I think, skill and importance for teachers to um, understand how to express things so that they're understandable. Mm. So, you know, they're, they're, we don't necessarily need to say all the things all the time to everyone. We need to know who we're speaking to. We wouldn't, I wouldn't be speaking, you know, Amharic to you right now because I know that you speak English and I speak English. I don't speak Amharic that well anyways, but still, you know, we, we know what language we're speaking to someone. So it's not about um, contorting ourselves so that we sound right the way, some idea of what's right. Like we need to communicate effectively, but it's really looking at the attitudes and the assumptions that are, impacting how we communicate and how we share these teachings. And, you know, I also talk about honorings um, in the book and I've been really getting in the habit of doing honorings before I start teaching. 
And so I honor native land because in, you know, settler colonial state like the U.S., that's something that's been acted, asked of us, the native people, to honor the indigenous people of the Americas. Um, I, I do an honoring of ancestors and invite people to honor their ancestors, but I also always try and do an honoring of Asian lineages. So whether I'm teaching in a secular context or a Buddhist context, I name that, like I name where these teachings come from. So even right there, like even if I go on to like only talk about neuroscience, mm -hmm. I've taken a moment to just acknowledge something that often gets dismissed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And you also talk in, in the book about uh, uh, epistemicide. Yeah, yeah. The, the kind of loss of knowledge or the murdering of knowledge, I guess. I don't, it would be, a, I don't know if there's a, the literal translation, killing of knowledge, I guess. And um, that would be part of this process too, yeah. In the cultural dismissal, would you say? Yes, yes, yeah. Epistemicide referring to how um, colonization was not just a fact of taking resources or bodies or material reality um, and destroying uh, people and lands along the way, but it was also uh, a process of um, uh, killing off cultural knowledge and cultural wisdom. And, you know, sometimes very outright that people were not allowed to practice their um, indigenous belief systems or rituals um, or, or different ways of knowing. Uh, and um, there was also a devaluing of that because it didn't fit into whatever Western European idea of um, knowledge systems yeah. existed at the time. Um, and with that, you know, lost culture, lost, um, um, you know, real value. Mm. Yeah. 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 And, and how that epistemicide kind of sneaks into this dismissal, like you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, it, it, you, you're really bringing up for me just how much kind of ways of life and culture and knowledge is so intertwined, you know, that particular forms of knowledge exist within particular ways of life, I guess. And once the way of life goes or is, is threatened, then the, the knowledge too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's, again, it's not that we all need to adopt everything, yeah. kind of bring everything back, but really cultural dismissal to me points to, um, the attitude and the arrogance, yeah. right? The, there was a real arrogance and epistemicide. And I mentioned the story of the wayfinders, the, 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 um, mo the knowledge and systems of travel that Pacific Islanders had to navigate thousands of miles of oceans without instruments, without large you know, ships and maps. And uh, the dismissal of that was a real arrogance that mm -hmm. this is, you know, a, a fantasy and not a true reality. And, um, and these people were banned from, from practicing this skill and they, they kept it hidden and a secret knowledge as, as many um, indigenous peoples did with these kinds of wisdom systems um, and ways of knowing, but uh, that arrogance of dismissal. So the arrogance of saying, Oh, these devotional practices or these, you know, mystical ideas, um, don't matter or are wrong or unscientific um, is, is often killing off a way of knowing that we can't, we don't even understand. Yeah. It, it can't even fit into our, our cosmology or cosmogony. Yeah. 
Thank you. So we're coming towards the end of our, our conversation. And uh, yeah, as I said, I just absolutely love reading your book. And I, I wonder if there's a sense of what's what's next for you. I mean, is there a, a second edition uh, <laughs> kind of in the pipeline? Or do you have a, a feeling of what's next in terms of your writing and teaching? Mm. Um I'm not working on another book yet. Uh, I'm pressure, paper. by the way. You've just done. No, that thank book. you. <laughs> yeah, I've done that for now. Give me a break. <laughs> um, sorry, I live in New York City, so yeah. there's a loud siren passing. Live sound effect. Yeah, um, I'm really interested in uh, the feminine, hmm. um, and I don't mean that in a gendered sense, but really in the sense of yin and yang and the um, way that has played out historically on actual women or um, femmes or genderqueer bodies in Buddhism. Um, but this distortion and dismissal and um, uh, kind of uh, lack of attention to what I'm exploring as a yin dharma. So the body, musicality, eros, the erotic, the sensual. Mm. Um, and I'm developing a course for the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which will be a year-long course that I'll teach with Pamela Weiss and Pamela Ayoyatunde. And that that's really um, kind of percolating. Mm. The course isn't until October, so we're still developing it, but really want to explore what that would look like, you know, especially at a study center where there is some attention to what it means to integrate study and practice, but to really um, explore form and how does our expression of the teachings, you know, how can it be different from, from the perspective of a yin dharma, from something that is relational and uh, connected to nature. You know, we go to these beautiful places and then we spend most of our time inside like vacuum sealed you know, air conditioned spaces. <clears throat> so what does it mean to practice, you know, really in relationship with the world? So that's, that's kind of where my heart is right now. Lovely. And, you, and you're a really a great advocate of lying down meditation too, aren't you? And I am. And I'm a really big advocate of lying down outside meditation. Lying down outside. Yeah. yeah. So I imagine that might be part of this too. Or, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, I really wish you well with all of that, and uh, and wish you well with with the book and everything. And as I said, I just I just loved it. I really really enjoyed reading it, and it's just been wonderful to talk to you as well. So thanks so much for your for your time. Oh, thank you, Jake. It's so great to talk to you, and so nice to see you again. <laughs>